Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Miseducation of Cultural Food podcast with Food Jonesy and Friends. I am your host, Charmaine Jones, registered dietitian and owner of Food Jonesy. I have my two good friends who are also registered dietitians to help me discuss important issues surfacing the dietetic profession. Let me introduce you to my good friends who provide their professional and personal experiences in the dietetic field. First, we have Dr. Tia Jeffrey. Dr. Jeffrey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Hi, sure. My name is Dr. Tia Jeffrey. I am the assistant professor and nutrition dietetics program at the University of the District of Columbia. And my research and practice areas of interest are the racial ethnic health disparities of food, food security and chronic diseases, uh, heritage-based nutrition education using storytelling and uh, prevention of treatment of athletic injuries. Okay. And next, we have Dr. Sapna Bethesia. Dr. Bethesia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself too? Hello. Hi, my name is Dr. Sapna Bathaja, and I am a registered dietitian and assistant professor at George Mason University. And my areas of interest in research are technology and social media in relation to overweight and obesity. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you both, Tia and Sapna. So let's get started. Today's podcast topic is exploring racism in the U.S. Dietary Guidelines. Are our U.S. Dietary Guidelines diversified enough? Before we explore this topic a little further, we are very, very excited to welcome our special guest, registered dietitian and diversity leader, Teresa Turner, to share with us her expertise on whether the U.S. Dietary Guidelines are diversified enough. Teresa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get caught up into our conversation? Howdy do. Um, well, great morning. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here with all of you. I miss seeing you all. So this is a good opportunity to talk about something important for the, the community and the country. Um, I am currently employed with Fort Meade. I am work on base with the Child and Youth Services um, Food Service Manager for six programs. I also am the Child and Adult Care Food Program Administrator. Um, but on my time, on my personal time, and especially in my life of utmost importance, more than anything, um, child nutrition and making sure of food equity and justice in the world um, and anti-racism efforts. And it's interesting that you refer to me as a diversity leader. Um, I have really tried to, especially in the last year or, or two, um, year, I would say definitely year, move away from diversity being the focus of what I do. And I say that because a lack of diversity is not the problem. It is not the etiology. It's a symptom of it. The reason that there is a lack of diversity is because of racism and inequity. So um, I always give this morbid example, but it's the best analogy I can think of. If someone has a wound that is bleeding and you clean up the blood around the wound, but don't do anything to the wound, you've wasted your time. It, I, I don't focus on diversity because it doesn't matter how diverse you make something. The goal is not to meet a quota. If you bring diverse 
people in in any type of diversity, cultural or otherwise, and you provide a toxic environment where people aren't respected, where there are microaggressions, where people are passed over for promotions, where people are disregarded and flat out being disrespected due to racist people, then the diversity will go away. So you can't, it, it really would be a waste of time to not try to attack the issue. So I really don't focus so much on diversity these days because um, I want to solve the actual problem. Right, good. I like that, Teresa. I really like that. So yeah, and that is a, a really good point of how you explain why you don't focus on diversity. And I love that point when you said it's not that it's not about uh, meeting that quotum is just being diversified. So again, thanks for taking the time to be on our podcast today. And I know we are ready to talk about the U.S. Um, dietary guidelines. So here's our first question. Do our current dietary guidelines accommodate Black Lives Matter, or is it, or is it the vibe of all lives matter? I'm going to pass this conversation to Tia. So um, Tia, would you like to take the lead on this conversation? So sure. Yeah, we talked about Black Lives Matter, and to me, it's a it's a movement. And right now, some people may see it as trendy, but to me, it's not trendy, and. All Lives Matter is infiltrated in our nutrition, our national nutrition guidelines in many ways too. I think because of the mass attention we're getting with systemic racism, there's more of an attempt to be more inclusive in the messages, but that has to come out in the actions as well. So in terms of dietary guidelines, we first need to address uh, the systemic racism aspect of it if we're talking about Black Lives Matter. Like, for example, why is it that there is an issue with the representation of the Black community and other communities of color in terms of participation in research? So if we're going to look at the evidence and we're going to look at the research, it has to be representative of our, the, the Black community too. And so without that, our dietary guidelines are not going to be as inclusive in nature to begin with as, as it could be. So if anybody else want to add to that? Sabda, Teresa, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's important to note one, one main thing is you come up with supplements when you're not able to meet a need. Um, one thing that always sticks out to me is the lack of the food access component. And I, somebody made a, a comment um, when it first in today, it was an article in Today's Dietitian and someone made a comment in the comment section was about several comments that really concerned me. But they said, well, it's the dietary guidelines. That's not what they focus on. And, and I, I understood the point, but if they are a guide that is here to serve all Americans, yes. then at some point, who's res- they ha- whose responsibility is it and if it's not their responsibility, where is the partnership with the person whose responsibility or the entity or organization or department whose responsibility it is? There must be a, a, the, a bridge of gap between access and, aware, and awareness and resources. You cannot give people this guide and say, this is the standard that we want you to meet. 
but don't provide any means to execute meeting the needs or at least a roadmap to lead them there. If the guide is not in this scope to talk about access, then an immediate partnership needs to take place in a curb to include an appendix or a supplement that comes out you know, every five years with it, a thinner, smaller version that specifically speaks to access to bridge the gap because you cannot give out guidance. You cannot say this, these are the things I want you to do. I want you to follow steps one, two, three, and four. And these are the tools you need, but I won't give you any inclination on how to locate them. Right. This doesn't work. And I think that is where the the Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter comes into play. If you if I look at it in that frame, I, I don't try to look at it in, in that frame because it's more complex per se, but it's the disregard for Black lives in general. It's mm. the disregard for the, the things the country has done to lead to the status of food insecurity, to lead to food apartheid, to lead to the, the lack of access and the, the lack of health resources that has been purposely done and the guidelines disregard that. This is not even on an accountability tip. This is the fact, okay, we know what's been done. We know what the past has led to. It's led to the current health situation and health crisis in this country and low socioeconomic status and communities of color. And y'all just gonna gloss over that and say, these are the guidelines for all Americans. Well, all Americans. Yeah. Like this isn't, isn't even about the dietary aspect. This isn't even about the nutritional aspect. This is about the fact that everybody does not have access to meet these guidelines and y'all have just kind of left them to their own devices. And I exactly. think that's the, the issue. Yeah. And yeah. it's like they don't have access, but you want them to eat help fresh fruits and vegetables and meet these nutritional um, recommendations every day with the lack of access. That is so true. Absolutely. It is not a one size fits all model. And I think that that is the way that it has been done in the past. And we need to really, like you said, Teresa, get to this root um, of the problem and address these nutrition related health disparities by talking about the systematic effects of racism, food security, lack of access, and keeping in mind that even though these are guidelines, these guidelines are the basis for a lot of our federal food assistance programs. That's what's guiding them. So that's the resources for communities of color, for these populations that are facing all of these health disparities. So if that's the model that you're using, the model is flawed and we need to do better to serve Americans, right? Stop looking, I give you an amen on that. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> hello. Here we and, hello. And in the past, our federal government, they haven't spent the money on the nutrition research. And they also haven't d- spent the, the funding on implementing the research. And when we go back to looking at the dietary guidelines process, mm-hmm. We don't have even an adequate amount of research that has been done on looking at communities of color and their specific nutrition needs, right? And that research has not been uh, fairly or justly included in these guidelines. Yeah, and then one more thing I want to add to that is that when we have the stress 
the physiological and mental distress associated with systemic racism. Nutrition is even more important to us as a buffer to all of these issues. And so how about there might need to be some adjustments and recommendations for antioxidants, uh, vitamin D recommendations are so mainstream. Yes. I mean, uh, 600, I mean, units. And the, the research, by the way, does not support 600 units of vitamin D, and especially in communities of color. I, I do want to add that, keep in mind, these guidelines are updated every five years. And if you look at the research from the past guidelines from 2015, most Americans are actually not following the guidelines. Only 9% of Americans are meeting the recommendations for fruits and vegetables. <laughs> not to mention what we are living in today with COVID, right? I, can, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about COVID and the health disparities that that has placed upon these, uh, it's, these populations that we're talking about that are most vulnerable, right? Um, it is really unfair and again, unjust that these diet related diseases are also impacting these same communities that are most at risk for experiencing the highest health detriments from COVID too. This um, concludes the first um, half of the podcast. And now it's time for our food interlude. Podcast episode four. This interlude is to each their own plate. This interlude focuses on individualizing nutrition and understanding that culture, life experience, and social influences all play a part in the way people eat. In this episode, Becky's Life Plans, a registered dietitian, Becky, is preparing for a group nutrition education class. Before heading to the class location, Becky runs into her colleagues, Shamari and Mina. Hi, Shamari. Hi, Mina. Hi, Becky. Where are you headed? Oh, I'm about to go and get ready for the buckle up and get down smooth road to healthy eating class tonight. Oh, yeah, that is happening tonight. It looks like you have a lot of pamphlets to carry. There are mass made lifestyle plans. Every meal and every exercise schedule is the same. I got tired of individualizing and recommending what people can eat. So now I'm telling them they have to follow this step-by-step plan in order to achieve the best results. It works for everyone. Trust me. Um, girl, I don't know if that's a good idea. Don't be silly. See, there's an acai bowl for breakfast, turkey and ricotta sandwich for lunch, and ooh, a dragon fruit for midday snack and methods. Becky, you shouldn't be making everyone stick to that same plan. It sounds like an advertised diet off an infomercial. That ain't evidence-based. Mina is so right. You can't be doing stuff like that. It's starting to sound like, um, like a life contract. There's no one plate fits all no one size fit all for all nutrition and health. Everybody is different. Their tastes, their body types, their goals, their schedules, their lives. Girl, give the attendees some 
options so they can choose from some healthy foods and be flexible. Nutrition is personalized. And who's going to find a dragon fruit in the middle of winter? (laughs) I see now. You guys are right. I don't know what I was thinking, really. Yeah, girl, you was tripping. Seriously. Thank you so much, Teresa, for joining us on our podcast. It was a pleasure having you on our show. And to all our audience, we invite you to come back and listen to our podcast as we discuss the misrepresentation of cultural foods, educating communities of color on adopting healthier eating behaviors, and more in the dietetics profession. Go to the Food Jonesy website at foodjonesy.com to listen to past recordings, learn about our upcoming episode and fill out the survey so we can cover topics that you want to hear. See you next time. Here's a sneak peek of the next episode. In the social political context, there's there's a melting pot framework that suggests all individuals of various ethnic backgrounds in a region assimilate into the dominant culture. Whereas the salad bowl view encourages individuals to maintain their sense of identity and integrate the elements of who we all are into a symbolic salad bowl.